Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a a very, 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 very great moment for me today because I am sitting across from Kevin Farley. I have never met Kevin Farley, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time, ever since I knew the documentary that he is one of the producers of, I Am Farley, about his brother Chris I found out that was coming out and I have a lot of feelings today and I do these podcasts you don't actually know what I'm feeling you don't know what's happening it's like if you're like a salesperson and you're going into a meeting and you want to sell something to a company and you're in a room with five people you don't know what they've been through that day You don't know if one person had a baby and they're all excited. You don't have another person lost their father the night before. You don't know if they got in a fight with their wife. You have no idea what's happening. But you go in and you try to navigate and you try to figure out how to do the right thing and try to make things work. I did something today that I'm going to share with you that I've never done before that I know of on this podcast. I sat down with Kevin Farley And I had a conversation with him before we came on. And the conversation that I had with him, I won't go into detail, probably uncomfortable for him, uncomfortable for me, and probably uncomfortable for the people in the room here because I have thoughts about certain things, but this is a very positive show. And I I always wonder sometimes as I meet people how it's going to be and how it's going to go. 
And Kevin is somebody who has strong feelings about how he wants his life presented and how he wants the memory of his brother to be presented. And I had a lot of thoughts about that because he sent me the screener to the film. And just to let you all know, just so you have the information, because I want you to have the information, this is a film that's going to be screening in a hometown of Madison, Wisconsin on August 8th, and it's going to premiere on Spike TV on August 10th. And I got the film last night before this interview, and I was up late. My kids had a baseball game, and I got home, and by the time I got them and carried them from the car into the bed, it was like midnight and got my act together. It's like 1 a.m., and I say to myself, I am not going to sit down with Kevin Farley unless I am prepared. And so I played the movie, and I normally, this is something you guys don't know about me, I work very hard to the point where I'll be sitting at my computer in different places, and what will wake me up is either the computer falling, my phone falling, or my head hitting the countertop. (laughs) And I was exhausted last night. But from the moment I pressed play on that documentary, I was riveted. And I was blown away, and I I celebrated the life of Chris Farley the way I know Kevin had the intention of doing so. And as I sit across from my guest here today, I just want to say before I go into a story that I I normally go into, and I don't know what I'm going to go into, it just happens when I watch him and I look at him and I sit across from him, I just want to say for those of you who support the show, Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You guys have been amazing. I can't do this without you. And if you ever feel the need that you want to give something back without having to write a check, just go on my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. Press the Amazon banner if you're shopping. Go crazy. The people at Amazon, they support the show. They send a little kickback to the Barry Cats Jewish Sons College Fund. And I really, really appreciate that. And so check that out. So I'm here. I'm sitting across from Kevin. And this is what comes to mind to me. And I'm probably going to get emotional here. And I don't want to get emotional, but I am. Jay Moore said of Chris Farley in his first book, Gasping for Airtime, I'll never forget this quote. He said, Chris Farley was a wrecking ball of joy. And to me, that's everything that I remember. I remember I was at Saturday Night Live a lot because Jay was a cast member, Jim Brewer, Tracy Morgan, Daryl Hammond. These are all people that I had fortunately been a part of representing and with their talent in mind to get them on the show. Also very close to Sherry O'Terry, who is also a client of mine now and who was an incredible talent at the time. And just hanging around Chris Farley, he was somebody who had no fear. There was never any fear at all as a performer. And if you're listening and you have any semblance of a point in this business where you're an actor, an actress, a comedian, a magician a musician, anybody, or I don't care what profession you're in, fear and doing well 
don't go together. There's no way that you're ever going to be successful if you have fear. And Chris Farley had no fear. And it was incredible what you could see. You know, there's certain artists in our business that you watch who shall remain nameless, and we know them because we see them on television all the time, who just are not comfortable in their own skin. And some of them are very, very good-looking people with washboard stomachs and six-packs. And Chris Farley was the kind of person who was just completely comfortable in his own skin. He dominated the room. He dominated everybody around him. And there was nobody who could compete with him. Even if he had one scene, one line, didn't matter if you were hanging out in the conversation, just standing around with him. You have no idea how powerful somebody is when guys like Mike Myers and Adam Sandler and David Spade cannot hold back their laughter when they're in a sketch with him and fear that Lorne Michaels is going to fire them because they're laughing at a sketch. But that's what Chris did. His goal oftentimes in doing a sketch at Second City or on Saturday Night Live or on The Letterman Show he had, it seemed like, one singular goal, and that was almost like the franchise show Make Me Laugh. His only goal was to make you break and to take you to a place that you've never been before. And every time I met him and every time I was around him, I felt that no fear, but I felt so much love and so much compassion, and he had so much heart. And it was hard for me because I was very naive, and I didn't really understand the way people worked and how show business worked. I was a young manager. I had four people on Saturday Live, and the anxiety that everybody was feeling. But when you were around Chris, you didn't feel anxiety. You just felt like, Honestly, for me, I always felt like I was watching a guy that I wasn't going to be seeing that much longer. He was so bigger than life, such a force of nature, that there was no way that a man who was living his life as a performer a 100 miles an hour, that he could possibly be in a situation where I could see that wrecking ball of joy for my entire career but I prayed I would. And I just want to tell all of you out there that this business is a really, really hard business. It's a very difficult business. And if you're talented, this business will take you on the wildest, wildest ride. And I remember I was at the Aspen Comedy Festival in the late 90s. It was my last time that I got to hang out with Chris. And I remember I went up to him and he was standing in a corner as he often did. He had this way about him that he was he was bigger than life. It was incredible. Like he could draw a huge crowd, but then he could literally hide in a corner somewhere. And oftentimes I'd see him like munching on like 
a snack or a burger or something in the corner and just taking in the whole room with this look on his face of complete joy. And I remember going up to him and saying, Chris, you know, I know I don't get to tell you this that often, but um, much respect. Much respect. That's all I could muster. And he looked up and he flipped his hair like he often did and gave me that wry smile and said, thanks, man. And that was the last time I saw him. That was the last thing he said to me. But I believed what I said. And it was nice to hear that he appreciated it. And I revered Chris Farley. And my only thought to everybody listening out there is if you ever have the opportunity in whatever profession you're in to rise like a rocket ship with your talent, understand the good and the bad and know the right and wrong about how to hang with which sort of people and which sort of crowds because it's very important because if you're anything like Chris Farley you're an inspiration to the world and as long as you're an inspiration to the world that means that every day you're around you inspire hundreds thousands millions of people and the world needs you if you are as powerful a presence as Chris Farley. So understand what I'm saying. I know it's kind of cryptic, but I think you know where I'm going. And I wish all of you the kind of life and heart that Chris Farley had. I'm going to go. <laughs> Woof. That's rough. I don't know if I can take it. You want to take a break? Or? I don't know if I can do this. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, 
and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and my guest, Kevin Farley. This is going to be a fucking great episode. Yes, you know why? I, I know it's going to be a great episode is because every time things get a little dicey in here, what happens is, well, Kevin's assistant uh, <laughs> has a technique to calm us all down and uh she shows her jugs uh, she shows a part of herself that um <laughs> frankly i haven't uh, seen in, in a while but um but that's another story i must say very 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 talented assistant she has a very large personality um a couple of them a couple of personalities <laughs> Okay, so I'm here and I'm excited because I'm going to give you the proper introduction and uh, you might have to sit back and you might cry because this is too long, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care. Kevin Farley is the co-executive producer of the upcoming documentary entitled I Am Chris Farley, the first feature-length biographical documentary about his brother Chris, the late comedy legend set to be released August 10th on Spike TV and in a few different cities across the country, which I already mentioned. I watched the film last night, and the film tells the story of Chris Farley's life from his youth in Madison, Wisconsin, and rise to fame on Saturday Night Live to his days as the star of comedies like Tommy Boy and Black Sheep. The film features friends and colleagues of Farley, including Christina Applegate, Dan Aykroyd, Mike Myers, Adam Sandler, Molly Shannon, Jay Moore, David Spade, and of course, Kevin Farley and his brothers as well. Kevin grew up in Madison as one of four children a year apart from his brother Chris. After earning a business degree at Marquette University, Farley went on to work for his father's business, but eventually moved to Chicago to study at the famed Second City, or as they call it, The Second City. After relocating to Los Angeles, he immediately began working with Adam Sandler in The Waterboy and also starred in the comedic films Black Sheep and Beverly Hills Ninja. Then Farley landed a starring role as Doug Linus on MTV's sitcom Together, where he was met with rave reviews. Kevin has also been seen in numerous hit TV series such as Curb Your Enthusiasm, Rules of Engagement, The Neighbors, Hot in Cleveland, just Shoot Me, United States of Terra, True Jackson, VP, and Hawaii Five O, where he has a role that he just talked about beforehand. Maybe he'll talk about it again. He was also in the feature film An American Carol, directed by David Zucker, who was a guest here on this podcast. Farley's lead character was a spoof on director Michael Moore as the storyline moves into a satirical look at Hollywood and America's politically correct culture. 
He is visited by three spirits who take him on a hilarious journey in attempt to show him the true meaning of America. The supporting cast included Kelsey Grammer, John Voight, Leslie Nielsen, and the late Dennis Hopper. Kevin's additional films are The Yank, Roswell FM, The Sound of Magic, and most recently, Joe Dirt 2 with David Spade. Kevin moved behind the camera as co-writer and co-director of Hollywood and Wine, which takes an irreverent look at an actress struggling in Hollywood. In addition, Farley directed the comedy paranormal movie, which pokes fun of the found footage horror subgenre popular with moviegoers today. Right. When Kevin is not writing more screenplays or on sets filming, he shines in stand-up comedy, which is featured in the film. He usually appears as the headline act, but is open for such incredible acts as Chris Rock, Norm MacDonald, Jeffrey Ross, Kevin Nealon, Todd Glass, and Jeff Richards. Up next for Kevin is he's starring in two feature films, Crowning Jewels, Frat Pack, and now the third thing upcoming, an animated series, American Family. Kevin Farley has truly established himself as a comedic presence both on the big screen and television, multitasking his true gifted talents seems easy for Farley because he does it all with a fabulously contagious sense of humor, both on screen and off. And now with this new film, I Am Chris Farley, which everybody should be really excited about. Please welcome my guest today. I'm so excited about this. Please welcome Kevin Farley. Gosh almighty. I tell you, Barry, you got a way. Holy mackerel. I'm actually bawling my eyes out to like over flattered. I don't know what to think. I don't know. <laughs> but thank you. I All love of it was really, really nice. Yeah. I, lo I love to think of this show as like an all in the family episode. You know, no, you're you, amazing. You just, oh, thanks. Yeah, man. that's amazing. Yeah. Coming from you. That uh that's 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 well done. You got me to like ball my eyes out and then yeah, I don't know what to do. I have so many things to ask you. And I want to ask you something that's almost going to, you know, put you on the spot about yourself. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind. Go ahead. And then you can again jump over the couch and strangle me. <laughs> so I'm I'm watching the documentary and I love the documentary. But I was a little bit confused yeah. because there's clips of you doing stand-up comedy in right. the movie yeah. that are, you know, great clips of you showing you in front of these sold-out crowds and people loving you. Yeah, we did we did some shots in Madison. And I just didn't really understand, like, because I don't know anything about the bond that you have with you and your brothers except for the documentary, and I don't know, in your mind, as a documentarian and as a producer of the film, I was trying to understand the reasoning behind your story and how it was with the film and your stand-up in the film relating to your brother. And I yeah. was hoping you could share that with me because that's the one part of the documentary, honestly, that even though I loved it, I didn't understand why it was in there. I don't know there. if he developed that enough in the, in the, in the documentary. And I, when we started out, we needed a through line through the whole thing and, and, we decided since I was a stand-up, and really, I sold asphalt before I got into comedy. Chris, in our family, 
my family's made up of bankers and businessmen, and Chris sort of paved the way into comedy, which was something very unusual in my family. And then when he did that, that sort of opened it up with my brother John and myself going, well, hey, let's do this, you know. So Chris definitely inspired me to go into doing stand-up, and I think when they did the documentary, wanted to... The reason I'm in stand-up and the reason I'm doing what I've done is all because of him. So I think they wanted to sort of tap into that, but I don't think they developed it enough in the film, which is unfortunate. I, I mean, I don't. I wish they would have just let me out of it, I think, rather than... Uh, I think they just wanted me as kind of a narrator kind of thing throughout the whole thing. But since I'm doing stand-up and I'm kind of carrying on the... Uh, but even though Johnny still does, he does commercials and that kind of thing. And so I don't know if that really needed If there's a flaw in that thing, that's probably it right there. I don't know why they did that. And, you know, it's weird. Me, I'm sitting across from you, and I'm not suggesting it's a flaw. What I'm suggesting— They should have developed it more. What I'm suggesting is, is that I saw you in that way a few times, and then I'm thinking, well, is he going to yeah. be in it more like this or what's happening? Yeah. So now I want to share this with the audience. You could see like a thing with all Kevin Farley doing stand up and you'd be thrilled, or you could see yeah. a thing with the documentary alone and be absolutely thrilled. I just was yeah. not quite understanding the structure of that where there was so much because yeah. basically the film is, I'd say it's, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'd say it's 90%, 95% uh, all these interviews and clips of Chris, and then there's probably 5% that's okay. you doing stand up. Would sure. that be accurate? Yeah, and then I think they had us me driving around uh, into our neighborhood, which was that. beautiful, beautiful, and then you were in this I like was sort of it's meant to be the the narrator throughout the whole thing. You know? Got it. Okay, and I think that's my role in the in the film. Got it's it. It's just kind of like me taking you through where we grew up and and how we uh, how Chris made it to from Madison to Chicago to L.A. and New York. Got it. Now, keep in mind, I did now see I'm just kind of like the narrator throughout the whole thing. Well, you're more than the narrator. <laughs> I want to ask you another question, a yeah. business question. Okay. Boy, I don't know the business side. And then we're going to get into some other stuff. Okay. Now, I'm very passionate about this. And, again, another question that you might probably jump over the couch with that has nothing to do with anything content-wise or anything in your life or personal or your brother. I notice here, okay, it says Kevin Farley, co-executive producer. Yeah. I am Chris Farley. Now. Sure. I am well aware because of my history in this crazy business. Yeah. That credits don't cost anything. Mm -hmm. They cost nothing. Okay. Yeah. In my humble opinion, I don't I saw the list of people who worked on this film and it's yeah. it's wonderful and there's a lot of great people. Yeah. But I would like to think that this movie there's a chance this movie isn't going to get made unless you're involved yeah. in it. Would yeah. that be a correct assumption? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I look at I mean at we this... don't get those people without me being I mean when I started this thing I did it because there's been a lot of biographies about my family, and I think I got inspired because there was some biography on Spike. It wasn't on Spike. It was on Bravo or something. I'm I'm doing stand-up in San Jose, and I go into the green room, and there's this there's my family on this on the television, and there's my dad 
they portrayed him like a gangster and you know chris is this wild man and you know it was all the salacious stuff and there's been a few biographies about my family and about chris and it's all been about the stuff that sells tv shows which is he was crazy and his father was insane and all that kind of stuff and i just got a little tired of it i've seen too many of those things you know so I wanted to do something of people that really knew him, people that really understood who he was, and also understand my family, and just sort of write the record here. Yeah. So this is where I'm going with this. Yeah. This is a business question. Okay. Yeah, okay. Credits. Credits people, don't yeah. cost anything. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. The number one credit in a film that's released theatrically, yeah. a film that goes theatrically, the way the credits work. If those of you who don't know. Producer is the number one credit, executive producer number two, co-executive producer number three. Yeah. In television, if it's a television and it's exclusively television, this is the dilemma for films that are trying to get distribution in theaters and sometimes it goes to television. But in television, yeah. okay, television shows, the number one credit is executive producer, number two, co-executive producer, number three. Uh, producer normally mm-hmm. sometimes there's credits in between that they put in but that's normally the way it works so this film doesn't get made without you probably not not yet not the you people yet no. your credit that's assigned to you that you accepted yeah. Yeah. is a credit that is lower than the highest credit why sure. is that because i'm not good at business barry <laughs> Basically, I think I got snookered. Probably it if doesn't you were my cost. Manager, a, it doesn't cost a thing. I don't know. I probably made a bad decision there. You know, but I know that. You know, looking back, you just point that out to me. I wish you were my manager. <laughs> I really do. I'm like stunned. Yeah, this doesn't I mean, this get do- made. Without doesn't me. get made without you. I no, mean, I know. And all they have to do is just change a little word here, a little few letters. Yeah, and you're the guy who's acknowledged that way so i actually um that well if you wouldn't away. mind calling those guys after this podcast i think we could straighten this whole thing out i will call them and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll have to change the print listen brother i'm with you i'm with you help me out please <laughs> but i will only do that if michelle uh no sorry <laughs> michelle does her thing i can't even look up now i'm, I'm, I'm like I, I, I really am scared to look up and i'm gonna share with you why and nobody knows this about me, and I'm sharing this, and my mom passed away about four months ago, but I'm sharing right. it. When I was little, my mom used to walk around the house with this, like, slip, and she had <laughs> very, very large chest, and she didn't wear a bra, and she used to walk around this thing. And ever since I was a kid, I said to myself, I'm never going out with a girl with big boobs. It scares me. <laughs> And, I, and I'm just going to be a leg man from now on. Yeah, I'm going to be a leg man. And so now. now I'm on this podcast and I'm just looking yeah, at, at, at Kevin and I'm not staring off in the distance because I'm afraid <laughs> I'm going to see something that might remind me of those those days. Exactly. Okay, we're going to go way, 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 way back. Okay. All right. So take me back to you growing up and the way your family was and the dynamic and the whole thing. And what was your first inspiration to getting into this business no i yeah we're going way back i guess growing up we had four boys and one girl christopher was obviously the middle disturbed child so i mean his antics were just kind of 
we just thought he was never going to amount to much. You know, I mean, he failed out of all school and he never did well in school. He got in trouble, but his, every time he got in trouble, it was always not vicious trouble, just trying to make people laugh, you know, but he wasn't very, he wasn't abiding by any of the rules. And I don't know, today they would call that uh, autistic. I don't know what they would call it. ADD, probably ADD. Yeah. And they give the kid a pill, you know, but back then they just let him go. The nuns would just let him go, you know? And so he knew that he was, he never thought he was dumb, but he never really did well in school or he never really did well uh, in any kind of uh, rigid environment. So he found uh, acting when he was around. We went up to camp, and this says this in the documentary. They had a play when we did, when we were at camp, and he found he was really good at that, you know. And he was the star when he was like 12 years old. And so he just sort of, that's the first inkling he thought, well, hey, this is something I can do, and I can do well. You say he was the star, but no one's giving him the lead in the play. Oh, he did get the lead, yeah. He did get oh, the lead. Oh, yeah, he sang Elvis, Teddy Bear, at the age of 12, and it literally knocked the audience out. Everybody who stood up and had, gave a standing ovation at the age of 12 singing Teddy Bear. Remember the song Teddy Bear? You want to sing a few Baby, bars? let me be a loving teddy bear. Put a chain around my neck. Lead me anywhere. Oh, won't you be my teddy bear? So Chris got up there and nailed the crowd. He just killed that. And so from that, he's like, okay, this is something I can do. He wasn't that great at athletics. He was a good football player. It wasn't that great. Of a Were you player. in the audience for that? Yeah, program? and I realized, oh, man. I said, this is something you can do. Thank God. <laughs> we found something he could do. And he was thank he thanked God that he found something he could do. He always said, thank God I'm an actor. Thank God I found something I can do well. And your dad and your mom are together at this time. Yeah. And what was your dad doing? What was your mom doing? What kind of socioeconomic environment were you living in? We were rich as shit. No, I'm just kidding. Dad did well. He, he sold asphalt, which is oil from the asphalt. But dad did pretty well. But he was a salesman, you know. And so he's always on the road and that kind of thing. But he was really funny. Dad was really funny. He could... Uh, command uh he had a very commanding presence big man about six three three hundred pounds big man big presence what about your mom tiny about this big so dad was giant and mom was a little tiny and together they had a pretty good show going on now were any of the children tiny none of us no (laughs) none of us we're all pretty big yeah so yeah Uh, dad was a really booming voice and a big man and a big salesman and chris looked up to him a lot when we were growing up and he tried to imitate dad. Most of the, most of the humor comes from my mom who's really funny, but dad's sort of focus and discipline is where, I mean, otherwise Chris would have been just a vagrant, you know, just like <laughs> getting in a lot of trouble, but he thought, well, let me focus my energies into theater. And that came from my dad. He was a pretty disciplined guy, but the, all the humor comes from my mom. She was really, really funny and goofy. And so you, uh, there was that show, and then did you start doing talent shows and plays or no? I just saw what he would do, and I I thought, you know, we were competitive in everything, so I thought, well, she, I want to do that too, you know. I think growing up I was just like lost. I was selling asphalt for Dad, and then I go, well, Chris is doing comedy. I want to go down to Second City. And so I just went down to Second City and started doing comedy down there and acting down there. 
and I lived in Chicago for four or five years and then came out to L.A. to do sitcoms and that. And I didn't want to go on SNL because I knew he would just, he destroyed SNL. I mean, he just owned that place, you know. And I don't think anyone's ever gone through SNL that has owned it. Maybe Belushi, I don't know. But there's very few people that have owned the whole show like he did, you know. Well, normally when somebody owns the whole show, what happens is, I remember this, I think it was in the uh, late 90s, maybe in the early 2000s, Norm MacDonald started dominating the show. Dominating, yeah. On the weekend update. Yeah, he did. And then he would do some characters that they threw him in on. This was a guy who never acted in his life, and they made him as Burt Reynolds, and he was fantastic. Fantastic. And And he started, like, really having this thing, which was this feeling like, no one could touch him. Yeah. And you're watching and you're excited and it's the season and it's like you're seeing the first 13 or 10 episodes and then you get back from your Christmas break and you tune in the show and for weekend update, you can't wait. And it's Colin Quinn. <laughs> Colin would love to hear that. Colin Quinn is on... <laughs> Colin Quinn is on the on the dais of the weekend update and Norm <laughs> Macdonald is off the show. Yeah. And he so got fired and for ridiculous reasons. You know, I talked to Norm about that and he, it still bothers him, I think. You know, it's just ridiculous the way that uh personally I think Saturday Night Live is a very I would never want to work there myself. I would just be like, Oh, I, I don't have the uh the thick skin. But you, you know? know how there's three sides to every story. And so, yeah. you know, my feeling is that he was taken out of Saturday Night Live because I think the illusion was that he felt that he was bigger than the show or he felt that he was bigger presence oh. than any of the other artists on the show. And he may not have verbalized that. He but may never showed. have said it. But it kind of showed the way he walked through the hallways and the way he yeah. performed on the show. Norm does not lack confidence. That's the one thing Norm does not lack. And uh, he might have been guilty of that, yeah. And maybe they got a little pissed off at that. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that guy is pretty confident. That's why he's so good at what he does, though. I mean, he's never been... Lacking and I talk about fearless. Norm Macdonald was fearless, absolutely fearless. I want to um, talk to you about something. You know, growing up with your brother, you know, I see my uh, two sons. They're ten and eleven, and oftentimes uh, one of my sons will feel like the other one is dominating in a certain area of life, right? And very competitive and trying to feel like, how am I going to get to that point where my brother's getting this attention. Yeah. And recently something happened and it really blew me away. And I think I might've talked about it once where one of my kids was excelling in athletics. The other kid was doing really good too in sports, but just not right to the level (laughs) of the other one. Sounds like my life. And I remember he discovered a Rubik's cube. Yeah. And he started working on this Rubik's Cube over and over again. And then the other kid got the Rubik's Cube. Yeah. And then he was like, again, oh, and now it's another thing. He's 
he's going to try to be better than me. I was the one who got the Rubik's Cube. And I remember walking into his bedroom and seeing him working on the Rubik's Cube and he wasn't going to bed. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I, I, I can't crack this. I got to crack this, Daddy. I said, you've been here eight hours working on this. Anyway, yeah. next morning, as I think I've stated one time before, comes into my room and he does it in less than a minute. Yeah, yeah. And the next morning when the other son woke up, couldn't do the Rubik's Cube. And I took that other son aside, the one that did the Rubik's Cube, and I said, look, do you know why you're doing the Rubik's Cube in a minute or under? It's because you've been working on it and practicing on it for hours and hours and hours and hours. And sometimes it doesn't matter what talent is what or where it is or how great a talent is. If you work harder than them and outwork the competition, sometimes in the long run, you can beat people out. Yeah. So as you were growing up with your brother, was there ever a point in your life where you said, I'm going to take this guy down. I know I can pass this person. I know I can, it's just something I can be equal to him. I can do whatever. Was it always like, okay, he's got his strengths. I have mine. And you know, yeah, this is the absolutely, way it is. Absolutely. Cause Chris and I were like twins. So we did everything competitively. How many months apart were you guys? Well, maybe 12 months. So similar to my boys, almost like a Irish twins. They call it. Yeah. So we did everything competitively, no matter what, you know, but I know, uh, like basketball, it doesn't matter. Whatever game we were playing, it ended up usually in a fight. And if I won, he would get angry. He was ultra competitive that way, you know, and, and people don't know that. He was really did not like to lose. He hated losing in any kind of game. And he knew, I think, in, instinctively, he was better at crap. If, if there was a, let's say, Robert Schmeigel would write a sketch and they needed to find the humor in it. They had a, they had a concept, but they didn't know how to push it over the edge. Where are we going to get the laughs here? Chris's genius came where he would come in and go, I know what to do instinctively, like lightning fast and go, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to make this funny and just make it funny where the writers would go. Oh, wow. We've got a concept here. We've got a, you know, basic thing of a sketch, but we need something to push it over the edge. And Chris would come in and just say, here's what I'm going to do. Boom, 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 boom. And you'd be like, whoa, that's exactly what it needs. And that's why he was on every sketch. You know, he would never write anything. He would just come in and go, what do you got written? Oh, yeah, if I did this, if I did that, if I did this, and I could make it back and I could make it better. He'd just make what you wrote much, much better. He knew he was better at that than anybody, almost anybody. And this is where um, your brother was an anomaly Mm -hmm. because I would never, ever recommend to anyone in the business to sit back and let other people write for you. I mean, that's normally the kiss of death (laughs) because it's like you're giving up the power to other people to help you launch your skill set as opposed to somebody like Louis C.K. who every week is writing for himself and directing yep. and producing for himself. Right. But Chris was like this anomaly that had so much power and force in his performances and so much confidence 
that literally writers could shut him out and only give him one line. Yeah. And he would still steal the entire sketch. Well, there's a funny story about there was a typical to that point. Sandler, Chris was filming Tommy Boy at the time, and he was flying back and forth on a private jet from Tommy Boy set in Toronto to New York City and doing the show. And he was exhausted. And so when he got done with an 18-hour shoot on Tommy Boy, he flew back to New York City, and he was only in one sketch, and it was called The Pepper Boy. And Sandler wrote it, and it was about a guy who was going around and giving pepper to everybody. And, like, Dana Carvey was his mentor, you know, and he's like, here's how you do the pepper. But it was all Sandler, and it was all Dana Carvey. And then Sandler said, Farley, you got one line. And he goes, why, thank you, pepper boy. And that's really all Chris's line was. And so, but, but, <laughs> but just to let you know and not to give up anything, Farley yeah. wasn't just going to go and yeah. sit down and just deliver the line. No. He went into full makeup yes. and had like a beard like Abe yeah. Lincoln put on himself right, right. and delivered the line like, like it was like dice clay at Madison right, Square Garden. Right. And he said, Why, thank you, Brad, Brad boy. And it was one of the funniest things in the whole scene, you know. But he would always say to, like, Sandler, right before he went on stage, he's like, I'm going to get you. And that was his competitive nature. Like, he was, he thought of comedy as kind of like a basketball game. He's like, I'm going to nail you. I'm going to dunk on you. You know, well, watch me. Here we go. And he thought about that like that. You know, it was like a game to him. And this is the thing that if you're out there in any business, 99.9% of the time, if you walk up to one of the people that is attempting to get to the next level like you, <laughs> and you walk up to them and say, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. They will try to crush you like a <laughs> bug. Yeah, right. But Chris Farley would walk up to you and say, <laughs> I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And you just laugh about it, and yeah. you'd say, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. If Jay yeah. Moore walked up to Adam Sandler and <laughs> yeah. said, hey, buddy, uh, I'm going to get you in this sketch, I mean, Sandler would tear <laughs> Jay a new asshole. Right. 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 But Chris had enough confidence where he was insecure about himself in a lot of different ways. You know, he didn't believe. And that's another thing about the thing. I would think people should believe in themselves. I wish he believed in himself a little bit more. But he knew... When he was going to nail you in a scene, and he had extreme confidence in his comedic ability, and he would look at you and wink at you and go, I'm going to nail you in this scene. I'm going to get you. And then he would just bring, he'd bring it. Bring it more than anybody I've ever seen in comedy or in show business. All right, so you're watching him at Second City. You're watching him now. What's fascinating about this is that there are things that he was known for, and people who don't know this, when you're doing a test for Saturday Night Live, there's a number of different ways it can go. If you're a stand-up, what Lorne and Marcy Klein and the team will typically do mm. is they'll go to a comedy club where they will do test deals with you and you will perform your stand-up. And then they will bring you in within the next week or so or two weeks to do your test on the stage that the host introduces the musical act on. And they will film it that way, and the writers will be in a dark place with a little light, and you'll hear a little bit of laughter, but very little when yeah. you do your test. The people who are improvisational people 
normally what happens is they won't test you. They will go to see you live, but they won't test you because there's so many people in the group and the improv troupe, and they see a wide-ranging group of people. And then if they like you, they will bring you to New York and test you with the other people. So typically, if you're a stand-up, you normally have to do at least two tests. If you're an improvisational person, there's normally one. And then if he's not sure, he'll bring you back a second time. But what I was going to say was, when he was at Second City, he wasn't a writer. No. So who was credited at Second City for writing probably the thing that people remember him Right. well for which was Matt Foley, Matt Foley right. motivational speaker obviously Matt Foley was I believe a priest in Madison Wisconsin yeah. Matt Foley was a priest uh, is a priest now uh, that we played rugby with and uh, he served in Afghanistan and went to Afghanistan and is now I think in Chicago Illinois and his name is forever <laughs> matched with uh, the motivational speaker guy he's a Catholic priest a good guy, really nice guy, and love Matt. And uh, Bob Odenkirk originally wrote that sketch at Second City. Bob is now better called Saul. And Bob wrote it for himself, and then he did it once at Second City, and then he looked at Chris and said, oh, geez, I think you, you'd probably do well in this. And Chris goes, yeah. I, I, immediately it's one of those things where he – once he knew he could nail a part, he'd go, oh, I know what to do with this. And he, from the opening sketch, he's like, I'm going to play this guy, you know, through the roof. And I'm going to take him all the way to the top, you know, yelling, screaming, and that kind of thing. And once he did it once, Bob was like, well, that's yours then. <laughs> that is absolutely yours. And that's one of the things about the stage that is very hard to understand from the outside looking in. And I've talked about this before. On theatrical stages, there's a lot of sharing of ideas. There's a lot of sharing of mm-hmm. characters. There's a lot of sharing of concepts. There's a lot of sharing of writing. Yeah. And people don't stand around and say, hey, I wrote that. That's no. mine. And so what's unusual about it, especially in the writing world, is that I can guarantee you something. Bob Odenkirk never made a dime from the motivational speaker Chris on would, Saturday Chris Night Live. Him, no, not but Chris would always kick him some money. Yeah, but I'm saying like, but so, yeah, he so, always so, tipped his hat at Bob. I mean, my so God. he goes on Saturday Night Live. He does yeah. the most famous characters on the show and helps bring <laughs> attention. And Bob, the writers on the show who <laughs> right. wrote the sketches right. for that character, would make money every week. Bob Odenkirk, nothing. <laughs> right. That's true. Uh, and I don't know if Bob's upset about that. I haven't talked to him about it, but I know that Chris always thanked Bob for that. Literally handed him one of the most iconic things. But Bob's in the documentary saying it wouldn't have been anything without Chris. So it's a give and take. And I think at Second City they did that. They improvise, and the way they write at Second City is they'd have improv sessions. And Bob came up with that character and said. There's a kernel of something here. And once again, it was one of those things where it just needs a little bit of extra something. And Chris came in and got that. You know, that was the one thing where Chris's genius shined. You know, he'd have a kernel of an idea, which is funny, a motivational speaker that lives in a van down by the river. And he comes in and he starts 
he just starts telling everybody, but he lives in a van down by the river. That was the colonel that Bob came up with. And then Chris took it to the to the end zone. So when you're both at Second City, tell me your goals for the future and how they related to Chris's goals. When I first saw Chris at Second City, I thought, oh, this is something I want to do, you know. You know, the the review and the uh just the way they did things, it was so exciting to me just seeing it. It's like seeing like, oh my God. I think musicians always say when they first saw their first rock band, I was like, Well, that's what I want to do. And I, I thought Chris thought the same thing. I think when he was in Marquette, he wanted to uh he was in the play at Marquette and he wanted to quit school. My dad said, Well, let's just stay in school and finish it out. But he knew that's what he wanted to do was go to Second City because that was the mecca in the Midwest where you went if you wanted to be a comedian and a, and a respected comedian because Mike Nichols and Alan Alda and all those guys came from there, Bill Murray and all those guys came. Our heroes were at Second City, so Chris is like, I got to go down there. That's where I got to go. And I felt the same way. I thought once he did it, I thought, well, it's okay to do that. My dad wasn't too upset with it, so... <laughs> We all went down there and started taking classes and just absorbing all we could about improvisation with Del Close was a big influence on Chris. And, and Del Close, for all those of you who don't know, is probably known as one of the greatest mm -hmm. groundbreaking, the grandfathers of all of improvisation. And as probably Kevin will tell you, had a big falling out with the Second City and started Improv Olympics. Yeah, he and, did. You know, but uh, Del had like things that Chris used as his mantra in comedy and one of the things the term killing chris always thought of dell when he the term killing dell would say well, the term killing was if you made the audience laugh so hard that they puked and they almost died that was your objective and he and dell had a very uh, uh a philosophy of attacking the stage which chris latched onto be a very aggressive and be very and treat it like Chris treated comedy like a football game. You you went out there and you were aggressive and you hit the guy and you your your objective was to massacre the audience and make them laugh so hard that they puke, you know, and they get sick. That was your objective, and he got got into that. <laughs> but Dell was a heroin addict, and he had that kind of like fucked up philosophy that Chris kind of latched onto, and he's sort of like okay. But he could grab onto something like, okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be very aggressive on stage and I'm going to, if I don't get a laugh, then I, I didn't do my job. You know, your job was to make them puke. So he liked that. <laughs> he liked that. Ironically, which is what heroin does to you. <laughs> That's um, right. How did you know, how did you know that Dell was a heroin addict? Everybody knew it for a long time. No, because it's something that no one sees. That's the one That's drug true. you don't see. I I never saw him like, you know, obviously on heroin. He was a good director as far as I'm concerned. But uh, he admitted to it. I think, you know, he was, I think he'd have ups and downs with it, you know. But through the 60s and 70s and 80s, he battled it, you know. But he was uh, an inspiration to so many people through improv and I mean, he was the guru. He was the guy that uh, started the whole thing. You know, he developed the Herald, and he developed, 
He developed long-form improvisation. I want you to talk to our audience about these different forms of uh, improvisation because Mm -hmm. it's an amazing kind of thing that you don't really get to hear about, and they're never really defined. So please talk first about what the Herald is. Right. When we went down to Second City and Chris went down to Improv Improv Olympic, um, it's called I.O. now, in Chicago, there was a thing called the Herald, and basically what it is is you have a group of, say, eight players or theatrical or actors. We call them players. And they would come out and do a scene, you know, improvise a scene, and then somebody would edit that and improvise another scene based on a suggestion, obviously, from the audience. And then they would do another scene, and they would do a group game. You know, the whole team would get involved. Then they do another set of three scenes, which were inspired by the first set of scenes. And then they would do another game, which was a group game, which typically involved a scene that involved the entire cast. And then they would do a set of another three scenes or vignettes or whatever you want to call them that was inspired by the first two. And so your hope was that it would all become seamless and would all tie in and you would see a through line, which often did happen, you know, a through line through the improv set, if you will. Or the and Dell didn't know what to call it, so he just called it Harold, you know, which is he named it Harold. Yeah. So we called it the Herald. And he came up with it. And oftentimes, you know, you would find, you know, something that it would happen, that would come from that which was genius and it it was a form of theater it's brechtian theater really it's it's its form is brechtian but dell took brecht into another form which was the herald now brecht was a guy that didn't believe in you know london theater he just thought everybody could be an actor you know and so improv stemmed from that improv also stemmed from viola spolin and all of her work and so all of that came from the 60s and the second city developed all of that work. And it, it just told that basically anybody could be a performer if, as long as you trusted your instincts and you trusted, you know, yourself. You could be an actor. You didn't have to didn't worry about talent. You just as long as you trusted your instincts was more important to Dell and to Brecht and to second city Trusting your instincts is more important than whether or not you're the most talented person on earth. And if you don't mind, take our audience through just a couple of more improv set pieces that would be the most popular that people go to that they don't understand the name of and they don't understand what it actually entails. Well, another one at the time when we were down at Second City at that time, which was Tina Fey was there and, and Amy Poehler and they were all... At that time in the 90s, there was a guy named Armando Diaz who came up with a uh, another form, if you will. He called it a form, where a guy, a monologuist, would step out. Let's say there's 16 players, and a monologuist would step out and do a monologue about, he'd get a suggestion from the audience, and then he'd do a monologue, usually lasting about three or four minutes. And then the audience or the, the players would go from side to side of the stage and then do vignettes on that monologue. And that was called the Armando Diaz form because he came up with it. And then so the other form 
usually uh, entailed. Uh, at the time, Second City did, when I was there, they did basically scenes, you know, you know, that were uh, in and of themselves, uh, just kind of separate in and of themselves. You know, they would do a review that was a one scene, two scene, and they didn't really connect with one another. And that was the old form at Second City. But then uh, Pinata Full of Bees was a review at Second City, basically, at that time, that took the long-form improv for that I.O. was doing and it incorporated it into the review, like a Second City review. And so it brought back much like the Herald kind of thing. So they did scenes, but the scenes would call back to one another and it was more of a long form influence uh and that was a really groundbreaking at the time uh because it was at the first time you saw like long form form at, at, in a review a second city review which typically was just scene 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 that were separate from one another and then it would have callbacks at the time so it was a, in long form that was what's going on in the 90s in Chicago at the time a lot of those forms were just Long form had its influence on Second City that, at the time. But that was the first time that happened. Yeah. Got it. So Lauren comes out to see a show. Yeah. And you're aware that he's coming. Everybody's aware that he's coming. Nobody's testing for the show, but he's coming. Yeah. And there's a certain troupe that he sees that night that it includes Chris Farley. Yep. Who were some of the other cast members in that group that Lauren went to see that night? David Pasquese, Joel Murray, Bill's brother. Um, Timmy Meadows was in that cast, who eventually went to Saturday Night Live. And I think um, uh, Joe Liss and, oh, boy, I'm forgetting now. Yeah, but they were a talented group. Pasquese was very talented. He was know. probably one of the most underrated guys yeah. in the history of that company. Absolutely. I mean, really really talented guy guy you know, always killed killed cerebral humor which chris and him were very different because pesquazi was cerebral and chris was more physical so together they made a really great great cast so i'm sure you're there that night that, that lauren attends the show well yeah the first time chris came off he did a thing called whale boy whereas he was a guy that discovered you know wasteland and he was half whale half boy and he had a helmet on that spewed water. <laughs> and he sang a song, goes, I'm a whale, not a boy, just a product of wasteland. I don't, can't remember the song now, but it was a hit. And he would come out and flop like a whale. And, across the stage. Yeah, across the stage. And, and Pasquese was a professor and he'd be like, well, we've discovered this man that's half whale and half boy. I don't know what to do with him. And, you know, he was kind of Chris's little, <laughs> he was his toy that he was, he was showing off to the other professors, you know. And then Chris sang a huge song, and then he would leap off stage and run through the crowd. And the night Lauren was there, he leapt off stage and snapped his ankle. Yeah. And he didn't make it that first time that Lauren was in. He was just heartbroken because it was the night before Lauren, I think, was going to come, and he, and he couldn't make it on stage. He snapped his ankle the first time Lauren came, and he's like, ah, damn, Lauren's there. And I snapped my I'm in the hospital, snapped my ankle, so... But the second time around, he got on, and Chris got on Saturday Night Live. How far after that was that second time when he recovered? Maybe a few months, which was agonizing months, because he had to heal up for this. Probably six months later, Lauren came out a second time, and his ankle was healed. He did Whale Boy, and 
He so Lauren on. brings him out the test. Now you remember those those days where, you know, you get flown out to New York. Yeah. You got this fresh faced kid from Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> yeah. being flown out, checking into a hotel probably for the first time in his life alone. Yep. In New York alone. Chances are you're not there with him. But you no. get the call and he's getting ready to go on and he's getting ready to test. What does he tell you? What things does he tell you before he has to go to Rockefeller Center and compete with all these other people from all over the country? Does he tell you that, hey, I got this, bro? Or does he tell you, like, I don't know what's going to happen? I, we as a family knew instinctively, look out Saturday Night Live. Don't, you know, he's going to rock. He's going to be a, a star. I don't think there was a doubt in our family's mind. They better about, look out for him. But what because, about his mind? But his mind, New York was a big town. We were all a little afraid for him just being in that city, you know, and knowing New York, it was a big town that he could get in a lot of trouble. It just, it was like, uh, we just sort of were very nervous that he was going into this big city with a big television show. We're just nervous for him. But you know? I mean... Before he got the television show, was he confident or was he not confident? He was confident in his ability. He wasn't confident in the business side of it. He didn't understand it. He wasn't confident in his comedy, but he just, show business itself was way too much for him to handle. Way, way too much. And I think he had my dad and everybody trying to help him, but he didn't understand the business. He didn't, I don't know, he just didn't fit in well with the business side of it. You know, he, he knew how to do a scene and how to make it funny. And that's all he knew. But the whole like Lauren Michaels, NBC television show stardom was way out of his league. And that's what we were nervous about when we, when he left Madison, we were like, he's over his head on this. We don't doubt that he's funny, but he's way over his head uh, with this show business thing. Uh, you know, so we were nervous. Now, one of the things being around the show as much as I was, again, I think I was very naive about a lot of things. And um, hmm. now I'm getting emotional. Don't you start, and I'm going to go. There was a guy who I used to watch when I didn't get to go to Saturday Night Live that I used to watch on television, and I thought he was brilliant on the news chair. And I never really understood why he looked so horrible all the time. He always looked so sweaty and his hair was always oily. <laughs> but his comedy was so unbelievable. And I'm talking about A. Whitney Brown. Right, yeah. And when I go to the show and I hang around... He was the one guy that I felt was like there was something wrong with this guy, but I didn't know what it was wrong. I didn't know what he was on, what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But as I sort of hung around, I understood as a young, naive guy from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, that there were certain guys whose vices were women. Yeah. And there are certain guys whose vices were like Del Close and A. Whitney Brown it appeared to me as the more I hung around him was that guy. And 
Yeah. It always scared me for the other cast members there being around him because he was so smart. His comedy was so smart mm. and it was mesmerizing kind of comedy. And I thought to myself from the comedy clubs that I'd been in where I saw certain vices around and I saw certain people get sucked into certain things. That was something that always worried me. Mm -hmm. And I always felt in my heart and I don't know anything and I can't quantify anything. And I, and maybe it's wrong of me, but I always felt that a Whitney Brown mm. had a lot of responsibility mm. Hmm. with the things you and your family were worried about <laughs> in New York City. Yeah. Am okay. I wrong? <laughs> Barry, you're going to be in trouble there. Uh, I don't know. I can't really comment on that because I wasn't there. But, I mean, um, yeah, look, I mean, yeah, probably. I don't know. I'm not going to sit there and say, hey, did he – contribute to all that uh i don't know you know but uh my guess is probably <laughs> yeah you know i don't know uh but i'm not gonna because that's a pretty serious uh accusation you know and i wasn't there so uh i don't know but i do i do know that uh yeah he was probably involved with all that stuff and i i know that uh Oh, that that's an unfortunate goddamn thing, you know. And it makes me angry. Uh, I saw Whitney Brown at the 40th, uh, and I gave him a head nod and went on my way. But, you know, with that kind of world, uh, who are you going to blame? I don't know, you know, when that stuff's going around. I don't know. Can't really. I want to blame somebody, you know. It would be easier for me. But I don't know. You know, Chris is probably to blame, you know, or a Whitney or heroin itself. I don't know. I mean, there's enough blame to go around. But I don't want to live in that world to get angry and blame somebody because that's just it's not healthy. It's not good. The past is the past and shit went down and people died and I don't want to blame everybody. You know, it's just not where I want to live. Got it. And so, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean. Everybody partied at SNL. I think everybody partied pretty hard. I don't think Chris was the only one, you know. And so I don't know what, what what exactly went down on that whole thing, you know. I just want to go back to one thing more positive. Take yeah. me through your first phone call, Chris calling you and telling you, "Well, yeah, I got the show. That was interesting because I thought... You know, we were at Saturday Night Live, or he was at Second City, and I thought, well, I thought maybe he'd just be a teacher at Second City and live in Chicago, and I'd be like, that's cool. He'll just hang out there and and then, you know, just eventually teach at Second City and, and be like a professor there and just kind of this crazy guy that works at Second City. And I'm like, well, good. He found his way. You know, that's cool. He, he found his thing, and he likes acting, and he'll be at Second City all his life. And then he calls and goes, you know, I got on SNL. And he called me and goes, I got Saturday Night Live. And I go, well, this is going to be different. Now shit's really going to be weird. And I knew right at that point, I'm like, well, this little family from Madison, Wisconsin is suddenly going to be put in the spotlight. 
regardless if we wanted it or not. And it had never been the same after that. And I guess I knew once he was on TV, he wasn't going to be a day player. He wasn't going to be a fly-by-night person that was just on SNL. I knew right away he was going to rock it. So I thought to my dad, I said to my dad, I go, this is never going to be the same. Jesus, grab hold. This is going to be different for the rest of your life. And it, it has never been the same. So it was just a game changer. And I remember thinking as I hung up the phone going, oh, this is going to be different for the rest of our lives, yeah. Because we were an anonymous, and now we're in the public eye, which is good and bad. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do, if you don't mind, a little six degrees of separation. Okay. I'm going to mention somebody's name and anything that comes to mind. Okay. All right? All right. Adam Sandler. Lovely, lovely guy. Beautiful man. Beautiful, loving family man. A rarity in show business. You know, loves his family. Is a very dedicated, hard worker. And a lovely person. Chris Rock. Uh, was Chris's best, one of his best friends, really. A, I would say Rock was, was one of his favorites and also dedicated, dedicated comic. Who, by the way, was hired the same year as Chris. Yeah. And they truly loved each other. They had a great friendship. Norm MacDonald. An enigma. <laughs> but intriguing. An enigma. The late Dennis Hopper. Oh, I worked with Dennis. Uh, I was in awe of him, you know. I think I was just, I didn't only met him, you know, on set. I talked to him a little bit, just kind of in awe. I sat in awe of him, <laughs> just what he did with, with show business, you know, starting from Easy Rider to one of those guys that took the bull by the horns and just did it himself. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, God. Mad genius, you know, came up with Ghostbusters. He loves the paranormal, Dan, and he loves his vodka. He's one of a kind. You know, he's a he's a sweet, sweet man, but he he loves the paranormal. <laughs> he likes ghosts. Dan loves ghosts. Yeah. David Spade. My brother, probably another Farley member. I would think of him as a brother, yeah. Kelsey Grammer. Oh, God, I love Kelsey. We did the show together. I don't get to see him as much as I'd love to. Just a kind, kind man. Very kind person. Mike Myers. Another kind, sensitive performer. Really sensitive, really kind, and genius. Molly Shannon. A ball of fire. Just a ball of, of positivity and the unsinkable Molly Shannon. There's nothing that can bring her down. If I could have an ounce of that positivity, I would I would survive for years. Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> uh, another kind, kind person. I only got to know him through that, that movie and just a really kind man that that uh, loved what he did, loved being who he was. And in the, in the, the second year, half of his career, loved him, loved the, what, what he was. So he was very happy and very content and very kind. Christine Applegate. I don't know her as much, you know. Uh, she was lovely to do the film. I just think that she is one of those that is 
you know, done so much in show business and everything she does is really, really good. I watch her every single time and I think she's excellent in everything she does. And I'm very honored for her to be in the film because she was part of that iconic sketch. If she doesn't laugh, I don't know if that's as good as that sketch really is. Christina Applegate was the host when Chris Farley did the first Matt Foley motivational speaker and she played David Spade's sister, I believe, in yeah, the yeah, sketch yeah. and Phil Hartman was the dad and I believe the late Jan Hooks was the mom. Yeah, I, am I incorrect? Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I know. Thank God I have a memory. <laughs> Bob Odenkirk. Oh, genius. Just a genius I don't, in so many ways from, you know, the movie that he's in or the show that he's on now and a, and a underrated, I think, underrated actor and the guy should be way bigger and i know he's big now but he he just i still think he's doesn't deserve what he what he what he is he's just a force it's a force of nature tom arnold (laughs) another force but in a very nervous force (laughs) tom needs to calm down no tom is uh once again like a brother to me i've known him you know chris and him were like a married couple, uh, just a ball of energy, a ball of showbiz energy. And uh, I always look at Tom as somebody that, uh, once again, takes initiative and gets projects going. He's, he's, he's unsinkable in that way, too. He never gets down. He's very positive. And he's always moving forward, which I love. And I always respected Tom for that, moving forward. Great manager, the late Bernie Brillstein. Oh, boy. Santa. <laughs> Santa Claus. He uh, definitely, Chris loved Bernie. Bernie was old school showbiz. Um, Bernie loved Chris, and Chris loved Bernie, and they were very similar to one another. Bernie had insecurities, like Chris had insecurities, and with food and you know and that kind of thing. So they really got along well. Chris uh, or Bernie always was just like Santa Claus, just a, like a dad. You know what I mean, but like a powerful Santa. Even more powerful than Santa. (laughs) (laughs) John Voight. Wow. Uh, Intense. uh, A boxer. And just a brilliant actor through his intensity. You know, he approaches things uh, very intense. Intense. You know, and working with him, you know, you you raise your, your game when you're working with John Voight. I sort of had to you know it's like uh it's like you're being in a ring with a a really great boxer you know you you realize okay i gotta take my acting job seriously (laughs) he's intense and he's great at everything he does ray donovan my god i didn't think you know when i see john i'm like what has he got next i mean he's always surprising you ray donovan is just brilliant absolutely brilliant and finally lauren michaels just a, another king of showbiz. He's king of all showbiz. If I had his knowledge, I'd be much. Uh, he just knows so much about being successful in the business side of, of showbiz, which I wish I knew half of or even a quarter of what he knows about the business side of it. He is the king of kings. Yeah. I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before I go into my last few questions, I know you guys, all you brothers, were pranksters growing up. <laughs> yeah. Which sort of fed into 
your brother on Saturday Night Live through those hallways between shows. Yeah, yeah. Tell our audience one prank that you can oh. tell them that you heard that your brother pulled on somebody at Saturday Night Live or some stunt that he did that not on the show, but behind yeah. the scenes that you can tell us about. Well, I, I don't know if it's a prank, but the funniest thing that we did, we used to visit him all the time in New York City. And one time we were at his Mother's Day, and my brother and I went out to New York and bought my mom a brooch because she loves brooches. You know, it was like a bumblebee or something like that. Mm -hmm. And before the show, we put it in Chris's dressing room, and then we sat in the audience, you know. And so we watched the whole show, and then they come out at the end, and they wave goodbye, and Chris is wearing the bumblebee on his shirt. <laughs> and he looks at my brother and I in the audience, like, thank you very much for the brooch. <laughs> and I'm like, he thinks it's for him. <laughs> and he wore it. He liked it. You know? And I'm like, should we tell him it's for mom? And we're like, no. <laughs> Let him wear the brooch. Let him wear the brooch. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your brother's looking down. Yeah. He can say anything to the world yeah. right now and broadcast all over the world. Yeah. What would his message be? His message, and this is what I did the documentary, is just he wanted people to laugh, and he wanted them to, to his memory to be one of joy and laughter. And, you know, so just remember him in that way. I think that's his message to the world. Remember him in that way, you know, that the, the, the sketches and the movies, and that's who he was. And uh, all the other stuff, forget about because that's the only thing that lasts, you know. Now, I'm going to do something that I've never done before in my last three questions. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like I'm sitting across from you, who are an extraordinary artist and great actor and you know, <laughs> producer. I'm also sitting across from a part of your brother that's being channeled through you. Yeah, I feel that. And so I'm going to do something kind of unique, I guess. I'm going to ask you three questions, and I'm going to ask you to answer them as yourself first. Okay. And then as your brother second. All right, I'll try. I'll try. Your biggest disappointment in show business and what you did to take that disappointment and turn it into something great in your career, first as you, then as your brother? Oh, boy. Okay. For me, ooh, uh, biggest disappointment in showbiz was doing a movie called Fart the Movie. Should have never done it. <laughs> Simply because of the title. Fart the Movie is on my resume. If I could take that off, I would definitely do that. Pass on Fart the Movie, folks. <laughs> And how did you how did you use that disappointment to? Uh, to... I just live with it. <laughs> and people bring it up. They're like, "Hey, you did a movie called Fart." I'm like, no, I'm actually a good actor. I'm actually really good. We well, did a movie called Fart, and never mind. So there was nothing you could pull on from that disappointment. <laughs> to get you really, yeah, can't really do anything about that. It's stuck on the IMDb. There's and what would I your brother say was his biggest disappointment that he turned into positive? I think. Chris took Black Sheep, which was kind of not where he wanted it to be. And well, the script was kind of a disaster when he 
And then every single night after shooting 18-hour days, he rewrote the next day and worked his tail off to make that a pretty good film. I it mean, was, a, It was one of the only times in his career yeah. where he sat down and he actually did rewrite things he did. and work on things. And we were, we, every single day we'd get done with shooting and go, okay, we have a writing session. I'd be like, good Lord. So we'd be done with 14 hours a day and then we'd write at night. Pretty intense. But he turned that movie into, into something good. You know, which was the script was pretty bad to start with. So he, I think he'd be pretty proud of where he took Black Sheep and and made it into something good. Got it. Worked his tail off on that movie. Which goes to my next thing: your proudest moment <laughs> and your brother's proudest moment in show business. I think Chris's proudest moment would have to be, boy, I don't know. My proudest moment in show business. Uh, I think just doing my own movie, American Carol, I think with David Zuck, working with David Zucker and being the star of my own film, that's probably the the best. That and the boy band thing was pretty good. Uh, and then Chris is probably would have to say doing Tommy Boy or or just the the Tommy Boy was his best movie. I think it was at when he was really hitting it, working on all four cylinders and really nailing it. I think that's where he'd say I was I was really killing it then you know Got it. yeah finally what advice would you have for the young person growing up in madison wisconsin or some yeah. small town just with some semblance of a dream of what it would take to get to the next level what do you feel it takes to get to the point where you have in your career and consequently also after you talk about that what would chris say what his advice would be for the young person in the business to get to the next level and achieve the heights yeah. that he did. Well, he never set out to get up to that height. You know, he never set out to become a star. You know, when he went into the Arc Theater in Madison, Wisconsin, which was a garage, he just followed what he thought were his strengths and he knew he could do well at. So he always followed just the comedy, the work, and and that's what really... He wouldn't worry about that. He didn't know anything about the business. And the business actually was, I wish he would have known more about it. He just followed what he thought he really loved to do. And and if you really love to do comedy or if you really love to act or if you really like to write, you'll just do it. And you'll the 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 business will come to you. You know, but you just keep writing, you keep acting, you keep doing what you could do. The business will just happen. But never set out to be a star. Then you're going to fail. I mean, then you're going to fail. Yeah. Just keep writing, keep acting, keep doing what you love, and then it'll happen. Or it won't, but at least you'll be doing what you love. Kevin Farley, <laughs> you attacked the couch today. <laughs> I got through it. That's amazing, all I said. Amazing, amazing show. Oh, thank you, God. It was tough at the beginning. I'm sorry. But I got through it. I'm glad. <laughs> no, I'm honored that you did this. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you. And I hope people love the film. And thank you for having me. And thank you very much. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders 
walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.